welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're going to be studying one of the great Christmas prophecies, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. So hear with me from the ages the Word of God. Isaiah wrote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's time-marking word. May we see Jesus in it well. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, as I begin a four-service series this Christmas, I... uh, want to do something as a pastor, I want to, uh, I want to discourage you a little bit and then I want to lift you up. <laughs> so I'll discourage you by helping you see if you haven't already the way things are this Christmas around the world. But then I want to lift you up to talk about the one who has been given to pierce that darkness, the light of the world, the Lord Jesus First, the rough news. As you probably already know, uh, we are in an unusually dark year. We're finishing an unusually dark year. Social commentators that I read have said that uh, things have stepped down in, 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 in world conditions to an unusually dark point, and there are many unsolvable factors going on in the world. I just was thinking back over some of them as I read the news and and think about life as I experience it, those that I love experience it. There's economic gloom that is is with us, and it it has a new character to it because for, for the first time, the emerging generation of young wage earners and young families may be permanently behind in terms of the quality of life that they could expect compared to generations before them. And by the way, that's not a United States phenomenon only. It is true around the world. That's unusual. That's unprecedented, in fact. Personal debt in America has escalated dramatically in the last year and is hitting new heights. It's not good. So economic gloom has settled over some people, and maybe you're walking through that and experiencing the fallout of it and changes you have to make to your life even today, perhaps as a younger family. Our social structure is becoming uh, oppressed with toxic conversations. Sociologists tell us that, that the 
the poles of belief in terms of morals and, and politics and values and how our society should be run and freedoms have never been more divided. And it's given birth to cancel culture, which is actually practiced on both sides of the political aisle. So there's economic gloom. There's a kind of a social depression that's settled as, as no one can speak with objectivity. Everyone has staked out a severe position, it seems, and that's led to political disillusionment. And for the first time in my memory, there are candidates that are going to probably run for president in our country that the majorities of both sides don't want. It's a remarkable setting. And then finally, we settle into another year going into 2024, as was mentioned already from the platform in prayer, of international fear regarding conflicts that may just spin out of control in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, and in the Far East, the potentiality of Taiwan exploding. And so these are not new to you. If you watch the news, if you are aware of current events at all, these things are, are rotating in your mind. And, but just to, to give you the latest, this is, these are the headlines I saw yesterday, just going through the, the news sources that I have. The, uh, the Anti-Defamation League president talked about the surge of anti-Semitism that has rolled worldwide through, uh, through the world uh, since the, uh, the terrible genocide and, 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 and attacks of October 7th. He just called it, I can summarize it, as, summarize it as a hurricane of hate, a hurricane that we haven't seen since 1945. Sociologists are telling us that there's a new term for some of the largest cities in America, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City, and others. It's the urban doom loop. Maybe you've read about it. The, the absolute collapse of inner cities and, and all the, the, the areas surrounding them because of economic decline, drug use, out-of-control crime, and costs. Durham doom loops that cities that used to be jewels of, of the celebration of human achievement turning in on themselves, and they have no solution for how these cities can avoid becoming graveyards. And here in our own city... Yesterday, the leading news story was how the Spokane Police Department raided a property, and uh, it was a drug property, and they found a fentanyl pill press designed to manufacture 17,000 fentanyl pills per hour. And here we are in a city of our own that before our eyes as we travel downtown and in other places is becoming chronically homeless but now hopelessly addicted with fentanyl, mill, fentanyl mills in houses cranking out 17,000 deadly pills per hour. So all of this illustrates a deepening darkness and it illustrates the darkness that Romans chapter 1 promises is the fruit of man's rebellion against God. And yet I think about all these problems and not one of them is a political problem. Not one of them is even a financial problem in certain, in, in certain aspects. They are all rooted in spiritual problems. They are all problems that are spiritual problems. And there is a desperate need for spiritual light to be cast upon the decisions and the relations and the outcomes of people. So that's the dark part. Now I want you to take a breath. <laughs> And I want to remind you that God has sent a light into the world as we're celebrating over these four weeks, who is himself the solution to all these problems. 
He is the light of the world, and we've already heard him testified about in Scripture. And he's already come for those who seek him. It's interesting, in Isaiah chapter 9, this is a great prophecy, and, and it, is, it, it has numerous points in, in, in human history in which it blossoms. But the very first point at which the light of the world blossomed into reality is actually in verse 2 of Isaiah 9, where he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And that was quoted to describe the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ in his first advent. Remember, we talked about the two arrivals of Jesus, the light of the world arriving in, in, in the beginning of his life on earth as the Savior who would go to the cross as he, as he came and he preached the gospel of his life and the gospel of his work, people who walked in darkness saw a great light and upon them the light shone in Nazareth, in Galilee, in Bethlehem, and throughout every, every place he preached and taught. People saw the light and came to the light. And that has continued ever since the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit has let the indwelling Christ through us preach the same light and people have found the same light and they've came from, come from darkness to light according to Colossians one, and they're now living a life of being guided by the light in the, in the body of Christ. So God did send a light. He sent the light of the world. His first arrival opened the gospel so that he has already come and he's already here for those who seek him. But yet we're going to find out today and in future weeks that he is going to come again visibly, not just spiritually, not just through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's going to yet to come on a day when Revelation 1-7 says, every eye will see him, right? And Isaiah has in mind both arrivals. But I want to let you know that in this darkened world, the world I just described to you, the light of the world has come. He is ready to transform any life that looks to him. And one day when he finally returns at the end of all of the history of the nations, he will take command of the world and he will bring his kingdom into place and he will rule all things and his might and his reign and his light will move throughout the world. And that's coming yet. So it's good news for the believer all the way through. You can know him now, and you can walk with him now and have the light of the world move through your life, but you can also know that huh, he's coming to rule the world. And everything that's wrong with the world that I just read to you from the headlines will be banished by Jesus Christ. It's going to be a great experience. You and I will be there in that millennial kingdom. You and I will see the world partially renewed and the nations streaming to Jerusalem and to, to see King Jesus sitting on the throne of David and as he rules and brings righteousness for a thousand years. And that righteousness will then extend into an eternal kingdom where the fully new heaven and earth. And we will be part of that too. The best is always yet to come for the Christian until he finally comes, because he is the best. So, this is about the light of the world who has come and who is coming, and that's what I want to talk about for these weeks, and Isaiah wrapped it up in this great Christmas promise. Isaiah promised that he is coming, and when he comes and you meet him, either now through a spiritual relationship with him, or certainly when, when the world sees him then, Isaiah gives him four titles that describe what the light of the world is like. He is a wonderful counselor. He is, a, he is mighty God. 
He is the everlasting Father, and He is the Prince of Peace. And I'm going to take each, each of the four Christmas messages I bring you and open that up to you. Now, we visited this text a number of years ago at this time of year. And as I went over the Christmas texts, I couldn't think of a better one to revisit for these times. And so let us journey again into it together, Isaiah 9, 6. I want to, as, as I usually do, break it up into two large portions of, of thinking. And I'm going to talk about the identity of the light of the world as the wonderful counselor and the impact of the light of the world as the wonderful counselor. So I, I want to work, walk into it with you. These titles are beautiful and they're ageless to me. I love studying and preaching at Christmas. It's a challenge because you go over some of the same texts over a lifetime and you re-preach them and, and, you, and you wonder, gosh, are there any more jewels on the strand? I mean, how many times have I been through it? Oh, yes, found more jewels for you, more beauty for you. J.I. Packer once said, the thing about the Christmas story is the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. We'll find that over the next few Sundays. Well, let's look first of all at the identity of the light of the world. Now, I, I, I want to go through verses 6 and 7, and, and I'm going to develop who it was just in his general identity that was promised to come. And then the second point, we'll develop his first title, Wonderful Counselor. But let's look first of all at the identity of Jesus who was to come, the one that the prophet was promising this child who would be born, this son who would be given. Christmas began centuries before the earthly arrival of Jesus. It really did. It began in the words of the prophets. There are a hundred or so prophecies that the Old Testament prophets put into place about the first advent, if you will, of Jesus. And many of those reflected on his birth and the miracle of it. I think Isaiah 9, 6 is the centerpiece prophecy in many ways. You may disagree, but I think it's a big one. It was so uh, crucial to uh, handle that when he was writing and composing his Messiah, which you probably have watched already this year, or you might, or you might even find a place where you can go and sing Handel's Messiah this season, that served as the centerpiece for his inspiration, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. The message of Isaiah is that a very unique individual would invade history. That's the basis of his promise. There are three things that are going to be true of him. Three things that compose the identity of the one that Isaiah promised. The first is that he would be born as a man. Look at the text, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us, a child is born. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before the angel appeared to Mary, 700 years before the stirring of this sudden pregnancy began to move in her, 700 years before the shepherds saw the angels, 700 years before the baby in the manger was adored. But he said that this individual would come to the planet as any other individual would. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Wasn't the birth of Christ miraculous and somewhat unique? Well, actually, I think you need to work on the terminology of that a little bit. S. Lewis Johnson, a, a 
somewhat favorite theologian of mine. He's with the Lord now, but uh, did some great Bible teaching out of Dallas Seminary and other places. Made the distinction for us. This is what he said, quote, you see the expression, the child is born is an expression that looks at him as a man in his relationship to men or in his relation to men. Just as we are born, so he is born. Our Lord's human nature comes into existence as our human nature comes into existence. Now, stay with me on this. He says, we often speak of the doctrine of the virgin birth. It would be more correct to speak of the doctrine of the virgin conception and of the natural birth of our Lord. Now, stop there. I think he may have a point. What was the miraculous aspect of how Jesus arrived on the planet? It was the conception of the Holy Ghost. Never had happened before. Isaiah promised it in Isaiah 7, 14. And and the world witnessed it only in one human being, that only one human being has ever entered into biological existence in that way. So he says, we often speak of the doctrine of the virgin birth. It would be more correct to speak of the doctrine of the virgin conception. And and listen to this, and of the natural birth of our Lord. What was unique about the physical way Jesus was born? Hold on, absolutely nothing. Mary went through a normal birth experience, a normal pregnancy experience, aside from the miraculous conception. She went through a normal labor. She went through a normal delivery. Jesus entered the world through a natural birth He goes on, because you see, our Lord was conceived of the Holy Ghost, as the Apostles' Creed puts it, but he was born as other people are born. So even in his birth, he entered into the experiences of humanity. It is the child that is born, his relationship to men, his humanity. So what he's saying here is that Jesus was was remarkably conceived, miraculously conceived, but his birth was just like yours and mine. Now, hold on to that for a minute. You know, we take a look at the Christmas story, and, and that's how, how Christmas cards give it to us. And Christmas movies and, and, and the imagination of, of the mind, we look at the, at the birth of Jesus in, in some kind of gauzy and, and supernatural aspect, but really, it was just another woman giving birth to just another child on just another night. He was born just like you and I were now that, that ministers to me because it means that he is like me, fully human and humbly human, humbly human. Who knows? Maybe Mary had a hard labor. You ever think about that? Maybe it was hours and hours. I mean, it was her first baby. Those of you Ladies who have experience in, 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 in the realm of bringing children into the world, start to think, you may start to think about that with me. It was her first baby, and they were under massive stress. They had to take an, an unplanned trip and leave their home, and, and, and she had to deliver in a strange town where, where they knew no one, and there's been no preparation. And when they got to, to they, they were looking for a safe place for her to give birth, nothing was available. I mean, I don't want to contrive this too much, but she was already well into labor and they didn't have a place for her. Think about how startling that would be. How, how overwhelming that is to know that the baby is going to come and, and you're, 
you're on the back of a donkey in a strange town where you know one and no one and, and every door is closed. That might be a little bit like you having to suddenly have your baby in a town where you've never lived and you, you don't know a soul. You'd have no family. They're thousands of miles away. And when you get to the birthing center, you arrive on a sudden night where there's a full moon and everybody's given birth. Our first child was like that. Laura was born on what the, the, the birthing center nurse called a full moon, honey. <laughs> I remember her so well. We were in a panic. And we didn't know what we were doing. And it was a hard, long labor. 27 hours to be exact. And there was, it was absolutely packed. The birthing center, every room was packed. There was no staff. I mean, it was an understaffed situation. And all we could do was hold on to the sides of that bed and remember all of our Lamaze classes. And <laughs> and going through that together, and all the only comfort we had was every hour or so that, that nurse would pop in and said, you know, do a quick update and says, hold on, honey. It's a full moon. There's no one, no one to help you, and every room is filled. It was a long, long, I mean, I think about Joseph and Mary. When they got to their birthing center, there were no rooms in the birthing center. They said, I'm sorry, we can't take you. You're going to have to wait in the parking structure. That's literally what they were told. You got to be in the stable. You got to wait in the parking structure. That's like going down to Sacred Heart or Deaconess and, and you, you go to Deaconess and it's a full moon and they say, I'm sorry, all the rooms are full. We had some emergencies. You're going to have to wait in the, in, in, the, in the parking structure. We'll call you. I bet more than one person in this town has had a baby in a parking structure. And that's where Joseph and Mary was at. Who knows, during a long labor, maybe the baby Jesus got stressed in the birth process. Maybe his heart rate was elevated. If Mary knew all that we know now, she might have just been terrified. The point I'm making is that Jesus was born in, in the way that you and I came into the world. There was nothing noble, nothing special. And it really touches my heart to know that the Bible says that he was made to go through everything like as I am. Real parents, real frightened, real new. And I'm sure that somebody, they, 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 like, like they did with us, they came by the next morning and, and started to get the, the vitals on our, on our daughter and took her little foot and put the black ink on that foot and put it on the record. We know just a few days later, according to Jewish law, they had to register Jesus and somewhere... The name of Jesus of Nazareth, legal son of Joseph, born son of Mary, was recorded in the archives of Judea County. And it was there until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That's how real he is. That's how human he is. He was born as a man. A child is born. It was a declaration of his humanity. And Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus experienced the physical, emotional, and relational life that you do. Anyway, that may not minister to you, but it just struck me. 
So he's born as a man. Now there's the second thing, but he would arrive as God. You see, there's a difference between these two phrases. For to us, a child is born to us, a son is given. A lot of people read that and think that's just parallel poetry. It's the second phrase is the same way of saying the, it's just a different way of saying the first. No, a child is born to us. A son is given. I think there's a distinction in the language. What do I mean? The second phrase is a declaration of his deity because you see he came into human experience as a child in the natural human way, but he was given out of eternity into time as God's son. He came as somebody else's son. He wasn't just Joseph Samaris. He was a son from another place and another time. He came from the throne room of God the Father, and God the Father gave him. He gave him. This is a declaration of his deity. The first part's a declaration of his humanity. The second part is a declaration of his deity. There's a distinction there, I think. Some people disagree, but I think... One commentator I read put it this way, a son will be given to us speaks of the Savior's pre-existent deity. By saying given, not born, Isaiah suggests that Jesus existed before his human birth. He was already God, the second person of the Trinity, before he was given to us to be our Savior. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and was found in appearance as a man. So Jesus existed before the birth event as eternal God. He was given by the, by the Father. That's who, that's who gave him. He was not only a man, he was God. He was, he was the divine in human form. You came into biological existence at a point in time. You and I have a beginning point wherever that conception point was for you. That's where you started. You didn't exist before that, right? But Jesus entered biology from eternity. He took on the form of a man. Jesus Christ is the only being with two perfect natures. Think about that. The son wasn't born. The son eternally existed. The child was born. The son was given. There's a distinction there. That means he's God. And I'm thankful for that because only God could go to a cross and die for my eternal sin. So three things. He would be born as a man. Second, he would arrive as God. And third, he was destined to rescue and rule the world. This gets into what I was talking about, about the two advents, because it says, of the, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, in verse 6, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. You see, Jesus Christ was not just born to save, he was born to rule. And I'm so glad because all that bad news I read to you from the headlines as we started says that this broken world cries out for someone to rule it and make it right. Don't you agree? It all collapsed in the garden in Genesis 3. God had given Adam and Eve dominion over the world to work in fellowship with him under his perfect will. They threw it all away through the eating of the apple and the defying of his will, and death settled on the planet, and with death comes disarray, and a usurper came into the, into the playing field, Satan himself. So Romans 6.23 says that, that with sin came death, 
And the Bible tells me in 1 John 5, 19, that we, now, we know that we are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, who is given temporary rulership over the nations, under the sovereignty of God, but who temporarily rules the nations? That's the enemy. Who rules and dominates the souls and the affairs of men? It's the enemy. The Bible says the whole world lies in his lap. And Jesus Christ not only came to save people eternity, eternally, when he returns again, he's going to take the government of the planet back. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Is the government upon his shoulder today? In ultimate terms, no. He is sovereignly allowing a usurper through the power of sin and deception and death to temporarily dominate the planet. But when he comes back, all oh, things will change. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And the whole world will worship him in that millennial kingdom as the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the everlasting father and the prince of peace and the increase of his government will in the future and of peace not have an end. And on the throne of David, I believe in an actual throne or an actual place in Jerusalem, there he'll be. And over his kingdom, he'll establish it and uphold it. And you and I will be there, and the Bible says we'll rule with him. And that's just the earthly first stage of the great eternity in which he's going to rule and reign forever and ever, a world without end. Can you say it? Amen. You see, Isaiah had the whole stretch of human history in view. In verse 2, from the arrival of Jesus as the Savior in Judea, all the way through verse 7 to the ultimate way in which he's taken back the planet and he rules forever and ever as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. I'm so glad he's coming back, folks. He needs to defeat sin and take back the planet. I'm sick of those headlines. Aren't you? I'm sick of them. The last headline will read, Jesus is back. And after that... <laughs> All good news. Now, I said earlier, though, that the light has already come. The light of the world has arrived. That's what happened on Christmas morning. The light of the world arrived. That's why Jesus could say, I am the light of the world. He who follows me no longer walks in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So Jesus has already arrived as the light of the world. You say, but the world's still fil filled with hellish chaos and, and, and sin and lostness and ugliness and destruction and, and all the things you were telling us about, pastor. How can you say the light of the world has come? He has come for those who will receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to be called children of God. So he's come to those who will see him now, and one day, when he's finally done with this planet and he comes back in judgment, he will come for everyone who will see him then. So you have a choice. You either welcome the light of the world into your heart now and begin to enjoy your life you have with him as your Savior and Lord through your walk with him, or you reject him and deny him. You either meet him after death or you reject him and deny him and you're still alive when he comes to take over the planet and then, time, then it'll be too late. Oh, he's the light of the world. He's already come and he's coming again. Now, when he comes again, the whole world is going to bow at his feet, Philippians 2 says, and they will acknowledge he is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. Some will do it grudgingly and too late. Others who welcome him are going to say, finally, the wonderful counselor has come. But the whole world will know it. Now, until then, listen to me closely. This is where it interacts with you today. 
Yes, he's coming back. Yes, he'll, the government will rest on his shoulders someday. Yes, he'll bring an end to evil. Yes, he'll judge Satan. Yes, he'll judge all those that have rejected his love and faith. Yes, he will start his kingdom to rule world without end. Amen. But now he has already come and you can still meet him. Listen to me, verse six, and you can still know he is a wonderful counselor in your life and he's mighty God in your life and he is an everlasting father in your life and he's the prince of peace in your life. You can know all that by faith now. Don't miss it. That's what I'm going to be preaching for the next three weeks. But this morning, I'm giving you the baseline of all of this to understand what is this, what is Isaiah prophesying about the whole impact of Jesus on human history? He would be born as a man at a place in time. A child is born, but he would also be arriving from eternity and from the throne room. A son is given. He would be arriving as God. And this God man, the only being in, in, the, in, in, in reality that has two perfect natures, would take his perfect life and die a perfect death for you and rise again so that you can now know him spiritually through the Holy Spirit as the wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, and everlasting father. And you grow in your walk with him until you see him in fullness for who he is. And one day he is going to come back and rescue and rule the world itself and defeat sin forever and ever. Some people say, well, Jesus is just going to come back spiritually and history will suddenly end and we'll all, boop, we'll all be in heaven. That's not sufficient for me because I've seen the wreck the wreckage of what sin does in a real world. And I want him to make it all right. I want a new world. I want this planet to be renewed. I want the nations to be renewed. I want him to get his worship on this planet, in this place, before eternity starts. If it all went wrong here, believe me, beloved, he's going to come back and make it all right here. In the planet where the suffering happened and the rebellion happened, Satan took the planet away by God's allowing sovereign grace. And he's coming back, the Lord Jesus is. You may differ, but I think he's coming back to deal with all. The government's going to rest on his shoulders. So all of that, I know it's a lengthy preamble, but I want you to understand the context of this prophecy. So now, if, if he has come already and you can know him now and see him now in all of these ways, now let's go to the first in the time we have left of the four ways in which every Christian gets to know him. Every Christian knows him as a wonderful counselor and as mighty God and as everlasting father and prince of peace. Now let's go from the identity of the light of the world to the impact of the light of the world. And let's talk about this phrase or title, wonderful counselor. I, I, I think that there are four names here. The first is wonderful counselor. Let's look at it. It's interesting. It says, and his name singular shall be called. And then there's a string of four different things. That's because he's God. Most people, you know, can be an impressive one thing. <laughs> he's God. He's perfect in every way. And he's all of these things. And, and he will be called that by everyone that comes to know him by faith now. And someday the whole world will call him these things when they see him come again. Let's take the first title, Wonderful Counselor. What does that mean? And Well, the two words tell the story. Counselor, here's the definition, a legal representative, an attorney at law, an advocate, or one who gives counsel and direction. I like the last one. <laughs> Although he is all of those things. He's an advocate. 
He's the master of all things true. He is our legal representative before the throne room of God. But he is one who gives counsel and direction, who tells you the wise thing to do, who always has the wisest and the most perfect answer. He's the counselor. But then he also is called a wonderful counselor. That's a beautiful word. The actual Hebrew literally translates a wonder of a counselor. Isn't that cool? You going through crisis today? Go to the wonder of a counselor that Jesus is. Don't listen to people first. Don't listen to society first. Don't go on your smartphone and search through quorum and try and find some expert first. Please don't go there. Go to him. A wonder of a counselor he is. The adjective wonderful refers to actions that are beyond the bounds of human power and can also be translated as astonishing or amazing or extraordinary. The Hebrew word can also be translated incomprehensible, beyond description. That's how great a counselor he is. Isaiah 11:2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus is all those things he was in his earthly ministry. He will be when he rules from his throne and the world will come and see it. He's a wonderful counselor. And everybody who ever met him in his earthly ministry and trusted him by faith or you and I through faith in the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, you come to conclude he's a wonderful counselor, don't you? I think he's wonderful in three ways, and this is going to form the body, and I'll close with this. First of all, he had an impact as the wonderful counselor as he lived his life in his day. As he lived his life in his day. You know, Jesus lived an ordinary life in an ordinary home. But if your name is wonderful, nothing can be ordinary about any of your days. I've often thought back to what it was like to be the mom and dad to the perfect Jesus. You ever wonder about this? You know, James and Judas were fighting in, this, in, the, in the second bedroom and wanting to stay up late and watch the latest Judean video game or something. <laughs> and Mary and Joseph tearing their hair out. What was Jesus doing? Jesus would probably walk in to Mary and Joseph and say, it's time for me to go to bed, mom and dad. God bless you. He never did anything wrong. Just think about it. Never. They never had to correct him. Think about it. They were given the ministry of teaching him. They taught him the alphabet that he himself had created. They helped him form words that he himself had had created, so he allowed himself in the humiliation of human experience to go through all the growth steps that we do, but he never had to ever not, he never had to learn not to do the wrong thing. He intuitively knew the right thing because he's righteous. Think about that. He taught them. I mean, some of it might have been comical. I mean, Jesus out in the courtyard there in Nazareth playing marbles with the other boys. Who would always win? The master of the, of the laws of physics. 
He couldn't lose. When he was older and he was working with Joseph and making coffee tables for the people in Nazareth, everybody wanted a coffee table made by Yeshua, son of Joseph, because they got it home and they looked at it and, and they said, those lines are perfect. The burl and the wood, I've never seen anything like it. The finish, it's perfect. Because that's who he was. I mean, go back to, go back to how he taught. This is, as he lived his life in his day, it, was, it must have been a wonder to watch. That's why when Mary would, would teach him things, she probably sat back in awe. That's why when they finally found him after hours of looking in Jerusalem when he was 12 years old and they'd gone back home, but he was in the temple teaching the elders. Mary probably wasn't too shocked when he, when he looked at her and said, didn't you know I needed to be here in my father's house about my father's business? Mary didn't argue with that. She knew. He must have been a wonder, just a quiet amazement to his teachers. Can you imagine that? Jesus in synagogue class. Okay, well, I'm going to teach you kids the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. If they only knew. Oh. And of course, we saw this with the disciples after a while, even the, as cement-headed as they were. When it finally came to Christ and he said, do you, do, you, do you want to go too? Do you too want to leave me? And Peter said, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. So as he lived his life in the everyday, that's why the crowd stood back and just talked to each other after every message by preacher Jesus. That was amazing. I've never heard that. Of course you hadn't. That came from the throne room. That didn't come from the dusty books of your rent-a-preacher. It came from the presence of Yahweh. Of course you never heard anything like that before. He must have been a wonder. He was such a wonder that even his enemies stood back in amazement and said, no man ever spoke like this man. We can't touch him. That's why Pilate hurried back into his own throne room when he realized what he was doing. And he said, who are you? <laughs> oh, as he lived his life, he was a wonder. He was a wonder. One of my favorite readings this time of year is a reading that was taken from the preaching of an old preacher, gone now, long gone, about how wonderful Jesus was, this wonderful counselor. I'm going to read it to you. Old preacher said this. There are 256 names given in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I suppose this was because he was infinitely beyond all that any one name could express. Of the many names given to Christ, let me briefly consider this one. His name shall be called Wonderful. Does this name fit him? Is it such a name as he ought to have? Well, wonderful means something that's transcendently beyond the common, something that's a way beyond the ordinary. It means something that's altogether unlike anything else. We say that Yellowstone Park or Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon of the Colorado are wonderful because there is nothing else like them. Let us see whether Jesus was true to his name. 
Well, his birth was wonderful, for no other ever occurred that was like it. It was wonderful in that he had but one human parent, and so inherited the nature of man and the nature of God. His life was wonderful, wonderful for its unselfishness, its sinlessness, and its usefulness. Even his enemies could not bring against him any graver charge than that he claimed God for his father and that he would do, that he would do good on the Sabbath day. Not the slightest evidence of selfishness or self-interest can be found in the story of his life. He was always helping others, but not once did he do anything to help himself. He had the power to turn stones into bread, but went hungry 40 days without doing it. While escaping from enemies who were determined to put him to death, he saw a man who had been blind from birth and stopped to give him sight, doing so at the risk of his life. He never sought his own way, his own in any way, but lived for others every day of his life. He had compassion on the hungry multitude and wept over Jerusalem, but he never had any mercy on himself. His teaching was wonderful. It was wonderful for the way in which he taught, for its simplicity and clearness and adaptation to the individual. Nowhere do you find him seeking the multitude, but he never avoided the individual. And his teaching was always adapted to the comprehension of those whom he taught. It is said that the common people heard him gladly, and this shows that they understood what he said. He put the cookies on the bottom shelf. No one had to take a dictionary with him when he went to hear Pastor Jesus and preached the Sermon on the Mount. He illustrated his thought and made plain his meaning by the most wonderful word pictures. How he died was wonderful. He foretold how he would die and when he would die and why. The time of his death was also wonderful. He sacrificed his life on the very day of the Passover, thus himself becoming the real Passover, to which the Passover lamb had so long pointed. The sky was darkened and the sun hid its face from the awful scene. A great earthquake shook the city. The dead came out of their graves and went into the city, appearing unto many, and the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And remember that up to that time, no one had been allowed to look behind that veil, except that of the Jewish high priest, and then only once a year on the great day of atonement. But now saving grace had come. How wonderful. His resurrection was wonderful. He had foretold it to his disciples and had done so frequently, always saying whenever he spoke of his death that he would rise again on the third day, and yet every one of them appeared to forget all about it, and not one of them was expecting it. But he rose anyway, just as he had wonderfully said he would. And then how wonderful are the recorded appearances after the resurrection, again so different from what man would have had them be. He appeared to every one of his friends and to his best friends, but how interesting that not a single one of his enemies got to see him. The effect of his teaching upon the world has been wonderful. Remember that he left no great colleges to promulgate his doctrines, but he committed them to a few humble fishermen whose names are now the most illustrious in all history. Looked at from the human side alone, how great was the probability that everything he had said would be forgotten within a few years? Because he never wrote a sermon. He published no books. Not a thing he said was engraved upon stone or scrolled upon brass, and yet his doctrines have endured for 2,000 years. They've gone to the ends of the earth and have wrought miracles wherever they've gone. The only record of his sayings was engraved upon human hearts, but now libraries are devoted to the consideration of them. No words were ever so weighty or so weighed as those of him who was so poor that he had nowhere to lay his head. The scholarship of the world has sat at his feet with bared head and has been compelled to say again and again, never a man spoke as this man spoke. 
His utterances have been translated into every known language and have carried healing on their wings wherever they've gone. No other book has ever had a tenth of the circulation of that which contains his words. And not only that, but his thoughts and the story of his life are so interwoven in all literature that if a person should never read a line in the Bible and yet be a reader at all, he could not remain ignorant of the Christ. His effect on people over the centuries has been wonderful. He has proven to be able to save anyone in any situation, any language, any culture, any time, and to save them forever. Now, we would say that an individual would be a great heart surgeon if that doctor could save 90% of those upon whom he operated. But mark this, Dr. Jesus has never lost a case. He never found a case that was too hard for him. His disciples were continually finding cases they thought were hopeless, and this shows how little they knew him while he was with them. Jesus never sent anybody away who came honestly and earnestly seeking his help. They brought to him all kinds of desperate cases, but at a word or a touch from him, their troubles were all gone. The hardest cases were no more difficult for him than the easiest, and the same is true today, for there's no change in him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can save a sordid serial killer as easily as he can save a high schooler who shoplifts. He is a wonderful savior, a wonderful savior because he can save so quickly too, quicker than thought. He can give you life. It is only look and live. As quick as you can come, he receives you. And as quickly as you could receive a gift you've been wanting for years, you can have salvation. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out, he said often. To as many as received him, the Bible says, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And there was often no need of taking very much time about it at all. That's how wonderful he was, and that's how wonderful he is. He's wonderful, beyond description. That's how wonderful he was in the life that he lived in his day. Have you met him yet? Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Last two and I close. He was wonderful as a wonderful counselor in the way he touches people's lives every day today. See, he's your wonderful counselor today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But, you know, um, you might have had a mixed experience with counselors. And we need counselors, don't get me wrong. They play an important role in our world, but he's far different than any earthly counselor you've ever known. See, an earthly counselor has to ask to know your need. Isn't that right? The wonderful counselor knows your need before you ask. He knows your sins and weaknesses. He knows your history. He knows your story. He knows your problem. knows your missteps. knows what you need to know. He's different. Yeah, he knows all about the secret sin of your past and the hidden hurt of your past. He knows what you couldn't bear to tell anybody that others have done to you. He knows the lost dreams of your past. He knows your present, too. Maybe you're going through something and you've said to a friend or family member recently, you can't imagine what I'm going through right now. (laughs) Counselor Jesus can. In fact, he doesn't have to imagine. He knows every throb of your heart, every rushing thought in your mind, every event and action that was ever committed against you. He knows it all. Earthly counselors hope they can help you, right? The wonderful counselor knows he can help you. Those who tried it, they came to be like Peter. To whom else would we go? 
Oh, yes. That's the way he is. And since he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, you can go to him for counsel. Go to him for comfort. And lastly, he was wonderful in the way he gave his life on that day. So he was wonderful as he lived his life in his day, as he touches people's lives every day, and as he gave his life on that day. You know, you look at somebody like Jesus, the one upon whom divine wisdom dwelt. You ever ask yourself the question, of all the wise things Jesus ever said, and of all the wise things Jesus ever did, what was the wisest? What could have been? My opinion? The wisest thing Jesus ever said and created and performed was the great plan of salvation. The wisest thing Jesus ever did, in fact, it came out came about as the result of a council or a conference among the Trinity. Ephesians tells us some things about this. Charles Spurgeon, when he preached to his congregation about this back in 1880s, probably, he talked about the council that gave birth to the plan. Let me close with this. I'm reading some of his words, which are old English, and I'm kind of explaining it with some of mine. What's a council, by the way? C-O-U-N-C-I-L. It's an assembly of persons called together for deliberation, a group of minds that come together to solve a problem, usually. Spurgeon said this to his people. It's been revealed to us that before the world was, when as yet God had not made the stars, the Almighty God did hold a solemn conclave with himself, a council. Father, Son, and Spirit held a mystic council with each other as to what they were about to do. That council, although we read but little of it in Scripture, was nonetheless most certainly held. We have abundant traces of it in the Bible. It was a meeting between the three glorious persons of the Trinity before the world began. Now, one of the first things they had to consider, he said, was how God could be, should be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. In other words, how a sinful world should be reconciled to a holy God. It's the ultimate problem, Right? It was fitting that they get together and seek counsel about it together because it was by a counselor that this world was ruined, Spurgeon said. A bad counselor, a wicked counselor. Think about that. Who was the wicked counselor that entered the Garden of Eden in the form of a snake? The devil himself. How did he wreck the world? Wicked counsel. Did not, did not Satan mask himself as the servant? He said, and counsel the woman with exceeding craftiness that she should take unto herself of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, we know all of that. And did it not as the effect of sin bring death into this world? He, write, he said, yes, we know all of that. He said, if it, if it took a wicked counselor to destroy it, it is by wise and loving counsel that it could be restored. But oh, what a difference between the two. To destroy something is easy, but to build it and rescue it is hard. Nevertheless, the council met, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and thus it was arranged. The Son would suffer. He would be the substitute. He would bear his people's sins and be punished in their place. The Father would accept the Son's substitution and allow his people to go free because Christ had paid their debts. The Spirit would then cleanse the people whom the blood had pardoned, and so they would be accepted before the presence of God, even the Father forever. That was the decision of the great council. Hmm. 
You know what? I think they left the minutes of the meeting in your Bible. I think it's in my Bible anyway. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That is a plan. That is a counsel. That is a decision, a plan of the ages. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. That's the minutes of the meeting, folks. That was the great plan of salvation. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, they put it into a resolution. Resolved. God will make him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What was the wisest thing Jesus ever did? He took counsel with the Father and the Son, and they devised a saving plan to solve your rebellion to break the back of your sin, to destroy the enemy and the deceiver of the world, and all to the great glory of them all. That's wonderful counsel. I'm so desperately glad that he did it for me. Such a wonderful counselor, amen? amen. Oh, he is. And it's a wonderful story, and that's why in Luke chapter 2, it really formed the heart of Christmas when the angels declared in Luke 2, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The light of the world for you. But here's the thing. This wonderful story will have no effect on you unless you let it transform you. Don't go through another Christmas where you're strangely warmed, but you don't know the Savior. Don't go through another Christmas where you enjoy the songs, but you don't know the Savior. Don't go through another Christmas where the family gets closer, but you're no closer to God. Don't go through another Christmas where you make resolutions about your working life, but you still leave your spiritual life empty and lost. The one who was born into the world can't change your life until you're born to him. Come to Jesus this Christmas.